very much, and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, so as we start to think about doing things differently in gestational diabetes, let me just give you a quick uh, historical uh, overview. Uh, the whole concept of the impact of diabetes in pregnancy on, on, and the direct influence of hyperglycemia on outcome goes back about 60 years to what's called the Pedersen hypothesis, which really because of the direct transfer of glucose from mother to fetus in a non-energy uh, requiring direct uh, uh, transfer uh, led to the understanding that hyperglycemia per se was the mediator of the adverse outcomes of pregnancy. In the next landmark is in the mid-1960s, the O'Sullivan criteria for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes which are still probably being used here today. Uh, in 1979, the National Diabetes Data Group uh, classified diabetes. Then we went through the period of an additional 20 years of GDM conferences and controversy. And in the midst of that, suddenly we're confronted with the obesity epidemic. Uh, we've had, uh, for a decade, the HAPL study being conducted couple of randomized uh, clinical trials treating mild gestational diabetes and ultimately now uh, new criteria recommended for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Well, we've defined uh, gestational diabetes as glucose intolerance with onset or first recognition during current pregnancy for a long time. Uh, it's not conditional upon the type of treatment used or the status of glucose tolerance postpartum. So GDM is an operational uh, definition of di for diagnosis to manage the hyperglycemic pregnancy. Uh, and it's been known for a long time that the frequency of GDM varies across ethnic uh, populations. Well, looking now at what it is that we've used to diagnose gestational diabetes for all these many years, these were data collected around 50 years ago and I, by an epidemiologist in Harvard, Sean uh, O'Sullivan was his name. Uh, and those glucose tolerance tests were simply uh, results plotted and uh, used to then look at the level of glucose present during pregnancy and risk of predicting diabetes in the period of follow-up. And not surprisingly, uh, it was found that the risk of diabetes several years later was directly related to how high the blood glucose was during pregnancy. We would say the closer you are to diabetes, the sooner you get diabetes. And this set of values that represented the, the middle were identified to diagnose gestational diabetes. It was not based on whether or not uh, these women had a particularly high frequency of abnormal uh, perinatal outcomes. It was a, a useful and still very useful way of predicting uh, the risk of diabetes. The focus on perinatal outcome came later 
but was not what drove the diagnostic criteria. Well, in 1979, we had a very landmark, landmark event in diabetes, in that for the first time, uh, we had a, a standard recommendation for the diagnosis of diabetes, linked to uh, progression to severe diabetes and the development of, of complications. So the criteria first advanced in 1979, modified a few years later, change the fasting threshold for, for diabetes, were outcome-linked. That was not the case for gestational diabetes. There were no data available to do that, and so the NDDG simply uh, said continue to use those criteria that have been developed by O'Sullivan. Shortly later, the World Health Organization standardized its diagnosis of diabetes, but gestational diabetes has remained uh, arbitrarily defined, not based on outcome. Well, as I said, for uh, a number of years then, uh, well, the definition was uh, widely accepted. Uh, there remained a lot of discussion about whether the, the outcomes of gestational diabetes were really related to hyperglycemia. Are they a consequence of older, heavier women who have more hypertension? who have more chronic urinary tract infections, et cetera, or is it really a consequence of hyperglycemia? And then there's, all, there's been a long-standing debate about the cost-effectiveness and the benefits of, of diagnosing and treating gestational diabetes, and the, uh, the uh, Cochrane reports of that kind of groups, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force had never endorsed diagnosis and treating gestational diabetes. Said in the midst of all this, then suddenly we are confronted with the epidemics of obesity uh, and gestational and uh, obesity and diabetes, and not surprisingly, that makes an appearance in gestational diabetes. Uh, these are probably among the best data that are, are we have on the, in, the increase in GDM <coughs> occurring in, in parallel with the obesity and diabetes epidemic. These are data from a Kaiser database in Northern California, roughly 265,000 pregnancies over this 10 year period. A very standardized approach to diagnosis, screening and diagnosis, so uh, there were no technical reasons to count for variation. And over this period of roughly a decade, a 40% increase in the frequency of gestational diabetes and all ethnic groups showed an increase, although there is variation among the ethnic groups. A second, uh, and there are two or three other studies out uh, confirming a similar trend. A second in, important study is also from uh, Kaiser database, this time in Southern California, and it overlaps somewhat with the years shown in the previous study, uh, but extends further. And so what is shown in, under the GDM panel is that in fact, uh, GDM uh, remained relatively constant over that period of time. So perhaps that increase in prevalence uh, 
this level off. But the news is not all good. If we look at the uh, what we see in pre-existing diabetes, the rate of that uh, prevalence more than doubled during that period of time. So the combined GDM and, and pre-existing diabetes went from 8.3 to 9.2% during the six years uh, of follow-up. And while the data did not, the, the, the record data did not allow distinguishing between type 1 and type 2 pre-existing diabetes, the population served and Transit this time make it almost certain that that's primarily increased type 2 diabetes. So, what that means is, in fact, people we would have previously diagnosed as gestational diabetes have already passed through gestational diabetes and had type 2 diabetes. So, our increasing prevalence of type 2 diabetes is as big a challenge to us as the increasing change in gestational diabetes. Uh, a couple of years ago, this systematic review of large groups of people with type 2 and type 1 diabetes published uh, through, uh, throughout the world uh, reached the conclusion that despite a mild glycemic disturbance, women with type 2 diabetes have no better perinatal outcomes than those with type 1 diabetes, indicating that type 2 diabetes in pregnancy is serious and something that we need to do a much better job of. And talking about type 2 diabetes, of course, we recognize that, that is associated with risk. And overt type, type 2 diabetes is usually not symptomatic, thus the strategy for its detection and diagnosis and treatment during pregnancy is essential as well. That's something we have not formally had in the past. So we do now have those kinds of recommendations in the form of this, uh, recommendations uh, published now a year and a half ago from the International Association of Diabetes and Pregnancy Study Groups uh, taking into account recommendations for both gestational diabetes and uh, previously unknown type 2 diabetes and we're going to review uh, some of that next. Give you a little bit of a summary of the, of the HAPO study because this is what drove the, uh, the new recommendations for GDM. And it really uh, set about to to uh, answer the question of what level of glucose intolerance during pregnancy short of overt diabetes is associated with risk of adverse outcome. It was to test this Patterson hypothesis across the whole range of glucose to determine what kind of influence maternal glycemia had on, on fetal development across the whole range of glucose not just severe overt type 1 diabetes as existed when this was originally put together. So this was done by testing um, at 15 centers in, in nine countries by doing glucose tolerance tests at 24 to 28. We've had 24 to 32 weeks of pregnancy in the mean of 28 weeks. The GTTs were done on more than 25,000 women. There were unblinded criteria for safety reasons, and then some additional people dropped out. But more than 23,300 women were followed through delivery. Uh, they had standard care, obstetric and neonatal care, 
has provided to normal pregnancy because the test results were blinded both the patients and the caregivers. And just a quick uh, illustration of where the centers were uh, and the number of people centers. So information was then collected uh, about course of the pregnancy as well as this delivery and perinatal period. And so we were able to examine the association between mother's glucose levels and this series of outcomes. Those designated primary were are called primary simply because some of them they were on the direct pathway illustrated the Pedersen hypothesis and and these outcomes were used to predict the sample size. Not that one was more important uh, than the other. And then these are the data showing the association of the mother's glucose level and then the four outcomes that were designated primary. This is from a new journal paper on the data. And this is um, the rate of large babies. This is the rate of cesarean delivery. Clinically defined neonatal hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia, uh, as measured by the level of core peptide uh, at the liver. So, for each of these outcomes, then there's a progressive increase as glucose level increases. And this, this difficult designation of category is there because we have a fasting one and two are all on the same slide, and the numbers top of each other. But this shows you, in fact, what the glucose levels were across these increasing uh, ranges. And looking at fasting glucose, for example, we started with people whose fasting glucose was less than 75 and then divided the group by 5 milligram DL increments. And the proportion of the, of the population whose glucose values fell in this range is shown here. So, Half of the people had a fasting glucose uh, in the two lower categories, that is 80 or less. And then we divided the people's one and two hour value in a similar way so that each group of people had roughly the same proportion uh, as the glucose concentration. So it seems like the fasting glucose is just as good as the one hour and two hour glucose. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, see that in a moment. Okay. We'll see much more about that. Okay. So that so that's a raw, just a raw plot of outcome versus glucose. It is not taking into account all those things that people said might in fact be the responsible factors. Weight, age, maternal height. BMI, etc., etc., blood pressure. These represent the data adjusted for all of those values. And what it shows then here is the difference in the likelihood of, this, of these outcomes in two women whose glucose differed by one standard deviation. And so for fasting glucose, when we show up here, that there's a 38% or 1.38 difference in the risk. It's two women whose fasting glucose differs by 7 milligrams per DL. And 
that's a strong association. The one hour, of course, the standard deviation is much larger, but it's also similar in strength, and the two hours is relatively the same. The association with cesarean section is influenced significantly by confounders, especially BMI. Above and beyond those effects, glucose is contributing directly to the risk of cesarean delivery. Uh, the association with hypoglycemia is not as strong in clinical neonatal hypoglycemia. It's not a severe complication in, in mild GDM. And then hyper, hyperinsulinemia is very strongly related to glucose, as shown in the last panel. Well, the other outcomes are also associated with glucose levels. Uh, as glucose level goes up, surprisingly to many, preterm delivery also increases. Uh, not, and we've known this about overt diabetes for a long period of time, but the risk in, in gestational diabetes has been controversial, and especially in myogenia. Preeclampsia, even adjusted for BMI, which is a very strong factor in preeclampsia, is also related to hyperglycemia. And then shoulder dissociative or birth injury, which in absolute frequency is low, even with the low frequency, is quite robustly associated with increasing glucose levels. And while the absolute frequency is high, absolute terror for an obstetrician is extremely high. So you don't need to have many cases to be, for this to be considered important. Other outcomes like needing the intensive Care unit, hyperglycemia, uh, respiratory things are not very strongly associated. They're also much more subjective in defining in any population that's under study. Well, these data look like if you go increments of standard deviation. So these are all for one standard deviation. Well, the next, uh, the next two standard deviations is twice as much as one standard deviation. It's a linear. These are continuous. This is applying the calculating as a continuous linear model is what is what is fit here. So what this the conclusions this all leads to is that maternal glucose perinatal outcome associations are independent of maternal age, BMI, and family history of diabetes. The associations didn't differ among the centers. Uh, that is to say we didn't see an association between glucose and People size in one center but not another center. They're not identical, but the association is present across all. And therefore, the results could be used globally for outcome-based criteria to classify glucose Well, the challenge, of course, is that the outcomes are more like this than like this. So we don't have an obvious threshold for any single outcome that we examine. That comes somewhat as a shock to clinicians. And, uh, but we've got overthinking of shocks like this in most of the medicine we deal with, a lot of them, again, majority of which is exactly the same. If we're looking at blood pressure and stroke outcome, we're looking at lipids and cardiovascular risk, they're all continuous associations. So we shouldn't be surprised, but it complicates our thinking uh, when we have to realize that although we call a diagnosis at a certain point, we're really dealing with continuous things. Well, 
when you don't have obvious uh, thresholds for something, you have to turn somewhere to do it, and so it still falls to committees. And so this group called the International Association of Diabetes and Pregnancy Study Groups, which is the diabetes interest in people around the world, uh, took this on and came up with the recommendations that I'll show you. Looking at those outcomes that we had, there were three outcomes that were really very strongly associated with increasing glucose levels. Large babies, fat babies, and hyperinsulinemia. Probably not surprising since that's the direct pathophysiological pathway between glucose and fetal development. So what the group decided was to use the glucose value from an average of these three. And as you should see here, these are the data for fasting glucose versus uh, uh, these three outcomes. And uh, the data for one hour looked very similar, the data for two hours. So one could choose any of the three or use an average as it was done and come up with pretty much the same uh, thing. Now the one, uh, the one point that I want to uh, point out is what I showed you earlier is the associations were looked at across the whole range, but when it came to selecting uh, thresholds for making a diagnosis, the group decided to use the mean glucose as the reference point. So for fasting glucose, it was just 80 point something. And the reason that was chosen is that I showed you this continuous association of increasing frequency for all those outcomes, but there was one outcome that wasn't our primary outcome, that's the, that's the inverse of big babies, and that's small babies. And in fact, as the frequency of big babies goes up, all small babies goes down. And at the lower end, this is the point where small babies are the most frequent. And some people were quite nervous then about using that as the reference point. So where the two lines for big and small cross is right at the mean, and that became the reference point. So we're now looking at the difference in risk between having glucose values in this whole range, or, or from this point, on up, as opposed to the whole, the whole range. So what then does that lead to? Well, the, the thresholds that were chosen were fasting of 92 or above, 180 or above at one hour, or 153 or above at two hours. And you know, the, one of the first things that people just intuitively say, well, why do you have such Odd uh, numbers. Well, 92 and, and, and 180, 153. Uh, the 153 is kind of hard to remember. Well, on the other hand, most of the world uses millimoles, not <laughs> milligrams, and so we had to make something that would uh, be uh, consistent with both. And making small changes just arbitrarily actually has a big effect, as I'll show you. So what? What does this lead to then if you then apply that to the haplostatic population? Well, the fasting glucose alone identifies 
8.3% of the whole population have a value of 92 or above. Some of those people also have a one hour and a two hour value above the threshold. But the fasting alone would get, get you half the way there. Adding the one hour value uh, adds another increment of 5.7%, taking the total of 14%, and the two hour value then adds another 2.1%, bringing it to 16.1% of that blinded population of subjects, and then another 1.7% were unblinded for glucose levels elevated. So this means over 17%, almost 18% of the population would be labeled as gestational diabetes based on uh, these data. Well, that's fine, you know, from a statistical point of view, as clinicians, we're really much more interested in what is the difference in outcomes between group A and group B. You've shown me that statistically it, it's really related to glucose. Okay, but what is the difference in, in outcomes? Well, the, the outcomes that were used to drive the, the thresholds each differ by twofold in the non-GDM and GDM by this approach. Uh, Preeclampsia is also twice as frequent in the GDM as the non-GDM. Preterm delivery is about 40% increase cesarean section and shoulder dystocia in the same general proportion. So the, this kind of difference along with statistically strong associations was what led this consensus panel to recommend those diagnostic dogs. Well, let's then look at how, the, how it was recommended to integrate uh, all of this into a comprehensive program. Remember I said that type 2 diabetes is usually not symptomatic at this point, thus we need a strategy for its detection uh, in pregnancy. And the recommendation then is to test for overt diabetes at the first prenatal visit, either in everybody, or if you prefer what you're going to define as high-risk populations. Now, in certain areas of the world, everybody is high-risk. In certain clinical settings, if people are very poor about having general medical care outside of pregnancy and have never had blood sugar measured yet, and they're pregnant, they would all be high-risk. Uh, settings you certainly can be more selective in defining high risk. But those who decide to test should either have a fasting glucose, an A1C, or a third choice, not very much of a choice, would be a random glucose to detect over diabetes. This was the committee's recommendation. There have been some differences in how it's been adopted in some areas. That that's basically saying the way we look at diagnosing diabetes in general, we could use early in pregnancy to diagnose uh, diabetes. The results indicate overt diabetes. They should be treated in the same way as pre-existing diabetes, should be targeted for follow-up after pregnancy the same way we do with pre-existing diabetes. If they're not di diagnostic of overt diabetes, but let's say 18 weeks have a fasting glucose of 92 or above, you'd already start to manage that as GDM 
everybody else then should have a GTT at 24 and 28 weeks. So the, the, the diagnostic levels would be a fasting of 126 or greater, 7 millimoles, an A1C of 6.5 or greater, or a random glucose of 200 or higher. And if it's the random that was used to, to uh, make the diagnosis, it was recommended to confirm it by one of the other measures. Then at 24 to 28 weeks, uh, test for GDM with a two-hour, 75-gram OGTT on anybody who's not previously diagnosed with diabetes or GDM. And again, the same uh, criteria would apply that you call overt diabetes only if they had a fasting glucose uh, at the threshold, and others would be called GDM or normal if all the values were below the threshold. A couple of other things to, to keep in mind in thinking about implementing that approach. If we're going to test for overt diabetes, we want to do it as early as possible so that we can initiate treatment to minimize the known adverse effects of overt diabetes. There are going to be people whose glucose values are in intermediate between normal and GDM. What should be done about that? screen for overt diabetes and you find someone with a fasting glucose of 91 uh, or an A1C of 6.3, what should be done? There are no data that tell us what should be done and therefore the committee did not make a specific recommendation. There need to be some research studies done to look at that. Now intuitively we would say that the earlier we diagnose any level of hyperglycemia that we're going to treat it, treat and treat it, the better it would be. But we don't have the evidence to say that for certain at this point. And we are in, going to end up certainly with an expanded population of both type 2 diabetes and GDM if we implement these recommendations. The other point that's important is that we need very accurate measurement of blood glucose, especially for the use of, of the fasting glucose measure. And there are, in fact, significant pre-analytical and analytical issues with regard to measuring glucose. We can think of it as one of the most standardized measurements we ever do, but if we don't collect it properly, we lose glucose in the tube while it's sitting there, and there are other issues. So, we want to be sure that our laboratories are doing it in the best possible way. Well, what's happened since these recommendations uh, were, were made? They were very quickly adopted in Japan. The Japanese Diabetes Association and the Republican Association uh, were among the, the world's leaders in pushing for we've got to be able to identify overt diabetes in pregnancy early much better than we've been doing in the past because it's a very common problem there. They were very quick to that. The World Health Organization is doing their own review of the HAPL data and other data looking at associations between glucose levels and, and outcomes. And originally I thought perhaps they would have 
their report issued by the World by the IDF conference in Dubai in, in December. Apparently, that's not been quite been made. And I'm at the deadline won't be met. So, hopefully, sometime next year. This January, the ADA uh, adopted the criteria with one exception. They did not recommend the A1C. Uh, there's some concern by Richard the fact that A1C does fall some in pregnancy. But using it in the way I outlined is a very conservative way. And so that if, even if an A1C falls somewhere in pregnancy, a 6.5 is certainly going to mean diabetes. So I don't think you would have any problem doing that. The only conceivable thing that might be would be reimbursement issues if it's not a recommended criteria. Now there's been some pushback on the other hand. Article was written in Babylonia uh, saying these are two these are wrong. There's been another one, uh, another commentary in Babylonia, another one in diabetic medicine. And the American College of OBGYN uh, had an expert panel of their own, and they said, don't do anything. That's just super rad. That was just published. Now, having said that, there is going to be another consensus conference held at NIH roughly a year from now, again reviewing all the same data, and we'll see what conclusions uh, they come up with. Well, what are some of the, the main concerns that lead to this cautious approach? Well, the first thing is there's going to be too much GDM. How much GDM is too much GDM? <laughs> well, no one has actually offered a number because they come from a different perspective. In fact, in wide parts of the world, the WHO has recommended that whatever you call impaired glucose tolerance outside of pregnancy could be called gestational diabetes inside of pregnancy. And that's the way it's done in a lot of places. So they already have a high number. So that's a kind of a soft thing to get your finger about, but it's a very major concern at the clinical level in all of our centers because it is going to mean a lot more GM. Then there's this issue of the recommendations are not validated by evidence from a, from a randomized clinical trial, and until you have a set of recommendations, you can't do a clinical trial. And in fact, are we going to wait for a clinical trial? Thing to get your hands around. Well, this question of too much GDM, how much is too much? So let's look at the data in the United States at the present time. And Kevin Cowley at NIDBK uh, provided these figures to me just a few days ago uh, from the 2005 2008 Ann Haynes data. This refers to women 18 to 44 years of age. Diagnosed diabetes 2.8%. Undiagnosed diabetes 1.7%. Undiagnosed prediabetes, that is either a fasting glucose of 100 or above, 10 below the GDM diagnostic threshold, or impaired glucose tolerance, quite similar to our two-hour value, a little different. But the total is over 30% of the people in the United States 
1844, that glucose, how can we expect GDM to be a little fraction of that? When it's the same, relatively similar numbers for glucose, we've got to get our hands, our heads out of the sand, especially if treatment can be benefit. So let's look at that question. There have been two randomized clinical trials done in the past, published in the past six years. The first was this A-choice study from Australia, and in that study, women were detected first by doing either a high risk or classified as high risk, where they did a glucose challenge, and then they did a 75 gram OGTT, and anybody who didn't have overt diabetes by the fasting glucose was called GDM if they were a value of 140 or above. Uh, they enrolled a thousand women. The routine care group, neither the patients nor the part nor the participant, the, the caregivers knew the glucose results. The intervention group were given what we would call standard GDM care. They were given medical nutritional treatment. They had follow-up to determine whether the glucose was responding to treatment, and if not, they went on to insulin therapy. Uh, they, the trial resulted in a reduction in birth weight, a halving of the the rate of macrosomia and, and LGA, a significant uh, reduction in preeclampsia, and without any increase in the risk of small babies, as shown in the last panel. Okay, now, just uh, two years ago, the uh, maternal fetal unit network Sanders in the U.S., uh, funded by NICHD, reported their clinical trial on Mark Landon, who's the PI on that study. Very similar size, roughly 500 in each group. Group not treated, not going to diagnosis, and group treated, again, first with medical nutrition therapy. The selection of these people was entirely different than the Australia study. They had the standard screen, then they had to have two values above threshold, but a fasting less than 95. So it's a complicated selection process. And they ended up then with the untreated group having twice as much uh, large, uh, twice as frequent uh, large babies as the treated. Uh, the, the reduction of hyperinsulinemia was borderline, uh, but their reduction of shoulder dystrophy and birth injury was substantial, and again, preeclampsia was cut in half. Very similar results in two treatment trials. The glucose levels were not identical in the people. What was similar is they treated them the same way. And, most important, over 80% of the Australia study, more than 90% of the U.S. study was accomplished with medical nutritional therapy alone, no pharmacological treatment uh, necessary. So, outcome-based criteria for the diagnosis and treatment of hyperglycemia in pregnancy will, in fact, often result in a substantial increase in the frequency of mild uh, GM. It's likely that many with mild GM can be successfully treated with medical nutritional therapy based on clinical trial data, 
Their use will promote progress in diagnosis and treatment GDM throughout the world. And so we're hopeful that more and more uh, people will adopt these recommendations. I just received word that yesterday that, uh, that in Germany that has been, that same step has been taken, although I can't read German well enough to understand the paper. So. Uh, I think I will just acknowledge that this work, at least the HAPO's part of the work, is funded by NISCHD and NIDK, the ABA, and additional support from others, and was conducted as a, as a large study, an outstanding steering committee, the monitoring committee headed by Steve Gabby, and uh, a lot of collaborators, 150 collaborators all together. I thank you, and I'm glad to discuss any of the things I've Outstanding treatment results. I think they're 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 almost better than you could expect, rather than disappointing. You you can't you know there is a bad. The point is that none of these outcomes are unique. There are there is no unique pregnant diabetes related pregnancy outcome. Uh, a very rare complication of a malformation is the closest thing that comes to that, and that is the. Skeletal dysplasia. So nothing else is unique, and by definition, things that are population-based, like birth weight size, have a known frequency in, in the whole population at large. That's why, in, in, in looking back at the at the uh, values that were used by the by this group, this is the frequency of people who don't have GDM. The right-hand column is the frequency of people with GDM. So if the treatment brings things back to the yellow column, that's where it should be. In fact, there's some concern if you were to aggressively over-treat hyperglycemia throughout pregnancy that you, in fact, would increase the risk of small babies and you might, in fact, start having more preterm delivery and other, other complications. And of course, the other very major looming thing in the background is obesity. Now, you know, we've, we've done a lot of analysis and published several papers on obesity because, again, we have this unique opportunity for a non-intervention observation study to really sort out uh, some of the direct influences of obesity. Now, it's obvious if someone's overweight, and even if you don't have a, a plan to do it, there may well be, quote, some kind of intervention. But we're not very successful in intervening even intentionally, so I doubt that that's a big, uh, a big problem. And you do see papers published, and there have been several published in the last 
few years that say, well, in fact, obesity is a bigger problem than GDM. Why are we focusing on GDM? Well, look, uh, obesity accounts for more big babies than GDM. Well, that's not what's been looked at. What you've been comparing, and I don't, I'm surprised these papers get published without more caveats in them. You're comparing treated GDM versus untreated obesity. You're talking about the residual of GDM versus the un, un, unimpeded thing. The other thing is that there's no cap on the level of obesity, whereas in, in our population, when, we, when we've compared obesity and, and GDM, those above a certain level were actually unblinded. And we know the risk of things like, let's say, macrosomia is, is astounding in people with poorly treated type 2 diabetes, for example. It's 50%. And in some, some of our series now with type 1 diabetes, 65% of, of women have big fat babies. That's because the whole, the whole intrauterine environment is so sensitive to over, overfeeding. So, so it's, it's, it is somewhat complicated. Now, there are a couple of really nice studies. In one of the Australia studies, that looked at, at metformin and insulin and all these in the same study, they've done another really interesting analysis. And they looked at, in all these outcomes, what really was associated with, with, the, with the outcomes as they observed them, and it was the level of glucose control achieved, not the means that it was attained. Uh, Odette Langer has come to a similar conclusion GDM treated in a different kind of design study. So um, I think even in the face of, of obesity, if we adequately treat hyperglycemia, we will achieve a, a lot. Um, now, you know, if, if we're worried about there being too much GDM in the way we define it here, I'll just give you one other little interesting caveat. If you look at women who are overweight and have glucose levels between the mean and that diagnostic threshold I'm giving you, that is, have a, a, fasting, a fasting glucose, let's say, of 80 to 89, and in the overweight but non-obese category, their additive risks are every bit as much as obesity alone or GDM alone. And that's another 40% of the population. So, in fact, we can build a very strong case for saying that in pregnancy, given the current climate in which we live, the best thing we could possibly do is give everyone a, a good medical nutritional counseling on day one and, re, and keep them under good nutritional feedback throughout their pregnancy. Could you say a few words about the plans to follow that half Okay, so the one unknown quantity, of course, is do these implications extend beyond the perinatal period? We know from animal model data, our older work, the work in the penal population, and some others, that overt diabetes is a direct contributor to the risk of impaired glucose tolerance and obesity in the next generation. The exposure to the intrauterine environment of diabetes predisposes to more diabetes and more obesity. Is that important at these levels of glucose we're talking about? 
you know, because the numbers are very large, if the effect size is modest, it's still a very big issue. We can only determine that by doing a follow-up, and it would be a very useful and important to have follow-up of the children of these clinical trials, treated versus untreated, did in fact treatment, is it early enough, did it achieve anything? So we have, we have um, made an application in conjunction with NIDDK to do a follow-up of some of the mothers and children from the HAPL study. It was done collaboratively, but unfortunately, I think it's right now a captive of Congress's lack of a budget. And so whether it can get started in 2012, I don't know. But we would like very much to do that because it would then add this very important dimension to uh, this information. I'm wondering, sort of in follow-up to Nino's question, we often see Asian patients leaner and sort of metabolically obese of leaner. So I'm actually wondering in some of your Asian sites if there's that. So, the, so we did not classify in, in our, in, uh, we did not use a separate classification in, in Asian populations and in, in others. Um, that's a, an issue that has been studied intensively and, and looked at. In fact, WHO uh, held a uh, big consensus conference on this three or four years ago and while there's general understanding that that in fact one reaches the level of obesity at a lower BMI they couldn't come up with a standardized set of, of, of recommendations and people in China felt differently here and there and so um Yes, we're probably even underestimating the association of you know, increasing weight in the Asian, uh, Asian populations. The other really very interesting thing is that maternal height is a very strong factor. So uh, tall, slender women have big babies, healthy big babies. So not all big baby is bad baby. Uh, maybe fat big babies is what we're really concerned about. I think that's the case. Short women, short for their group in every ethnic group, have higher rates of diabetes. Now, you know, the, the, women, the short women of Thailand are really quite short. The short Caucasian women, though, are, are different than the tall Caucasian women also, or the African American. So maternal height, as we've known from our animal information, <laughs> Maternal size is a huge determinant of baby's birth size. But, but other factors like overfeeding are, are big factors in the, the amount of adipose tissue, the amount of hyperinsulinemia, factors which may well be conditioning the hypothalamic energy balance uh, and uh, you know, feedback signals of insulin and leptin at the central nervous system are, are undergoing maturation in this state at this stage. So Lois Javonovic in the 70s used to say that she's pretty short, but I wouldn't see it because I'm very tall, but patients are shorter than she is. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an interesting observation that then it's so interesting that then it's continuing to be observed. 
For structure, for for, um, for structural abnormalities, and in fact, early fetal loss, the, the associations are probably relatively continuous too. But they, but um, in the uh, old diabetes and early pregnancy study that we did, you know, many many years ago, uh, the the risk of uh, fetal loss was continuous across the whole range. Uh, of A1C, we really didn't demonstrate it for malformations because we had the uh, the effect that the background population was in better and better control and had uh, had a lower rate of of malformations than predicted. But and so the sample size proved to be uh, inadequate. So I think there probably are. There probably are some thresholds for the structural abnormalities, but hey, we really don't have the data uh, to back them. I do think there are two sort of, not anecdotal, but pieces of information, but I, I think there's a reasonable likelihood that these associations are continuous with regard to the risks we're talking about. And the two things, two pieces of information that support that are the old PEMA data that look at the rate of diabetes in the next generation who are exposed. And, and those are across the whole range of glucose levels present in the mother's pregnancy for the next generation. Uh, and then there's been one study uh, published from uh, of insurance plan that involved the State of Washington and uh, Hawaii it was done by Teresa Hillier, published in Diabetes Care. And what they did was they, they looked at about 10,000 women who had been screened with the old 50-gram screening test and then had OGTTs if they flunked. And so they went back and they, what they did is from the medical records of this insurance plan, they could get the weight of the children at age 8, and so the background was the people who had a screening glucose you know, less than 130 or 140. The next group were people who uh, they actually showed within, within that group some difference in risk of, of, of weight in the children. And then they had people who, who required an OGTT a group of those were normal by the used criteria. A group had one abnormal value, something that's ignored in the current system. And then they had a group who met a, one set of criteria for GDM, but not the NDDG criteria that were used for intervention. So they had these whole several groups, and the risk of, of overweight in these kids went up as the mother's glucose levels were higher. And then the really tantalizing thing was that the 
people who had GDM, the highest glucoses, and in fact were treated, it looked like they might have a little bit lower risk. So it's tantalizing, not the kind of thing that U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is going to endorse or some you know, Ministry of Health in XYZ country is going to buy into, but I think encouraging from the perspective of what we're trying to achieve in our clinical care. Thank you very much. Okay.